0: Ruth Wilson read her first Jane Austen novel in 1947. In 2021, at the age of 88, she graduated from the University of Sydney with a PhD that suggests a new approach to reading literary fiction at school. Ruth Wilson, or should I say Dr. Ruth Wilson, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You can rob the doctor. <laughs>
0: Now, the genesis for The Jane Austen Remedy lies in a PhD that suggests a new approach to reading literary fiction at school. What is it about reading literary fiction that you want the world to know?
1: I really want the world to know that it is worth the effort, that at the heart of literary fiction, you have a richness, a complexity, layers of nuances that not only will bring you great pleasure, as you resolve the puzzles of whatever art and novels are, but also that will be useful in terms of practical wisdom. You will develop some skills by identifying evidence, weighing it up, referring to your judgment to try to make some sort of evaluation of where a particular situation is taking you, whether certain characters in a book are worth knowing, are not worth knowing. There is so much in literary fiction that is different from the stereotypes that you get in the blandness of work that does not enter into the centre of what it is to be a human being.
0: The Jane Austen Remedy is really all about being a human being, from what I can gather. Well, one human being. (laughs) at least one. Uh, Early in the memoir, and I think it's a memoir, you recall this moment where you are arranging the photographs that recorded a gathering on your 70th birthday. I noticed that I was not smiling in any of them. I wondered why, for someone so privileged, I looked miserable. You go on to say that you were not just out of love with someone, but out of love with the world. What did you put that feeling down to? And how do you look upon that moment now, some 20 years later?
1: I still remember that moment. I remember looking at those photographs and thinking, I don't even recognise me. I don't recognise the sort of person I thought I was going to be. And I wondered whether there was something in my life that needed even more drastic changing than I had already implemented. I'd already taken myself to the country to Try to recover from a syndrome which affected my hearing and my balance. Uh, I was dealing with that with medication, but that look on my face really brought me up with a uh, with a start. And I thought, I have to do something. I'm. <laughs> this may sound very funny, Greg, but I thought to myself, I'm only 70. I've got some more years left and I really want to enjoy them. And that was an enormous impetus. It was the catalyst that took me to, I had been reading and rereading Jane Austen, but now I started to read her with much greater intent to try to understand why it was that whenever I was thinking about something or talking about a character or talking about a value, I seemed to come back to something that I'd read in a Jane Austen novel. And so that's when I started thinking to myself, well, if I am am out of love, perhaps perhaps with the world was an exaggeration, out of love with my own life, then I need to change something in my own life and do something about it.
0: Now, we'll talk about that reading of Jane Austen with greater intent in a moment, but you admit to being a lifelong reader. That's a, a nice admission to make, of course.
1: Oh, it is. It's it's more than an admission. It's it's almost a (laughs) (laughs) boast.
0: You refer to reading not simply as an act, but as an art. What do you mean by reading as an art?
1: I think anything that transcends the ordinary, even though it may start with the ordinary, a story of an ordinary girl who wants to find the right sort of husband for her in the particular climate of her times, and yet... As you read, if you can bring to the text that you're reading, and if the text that you are reading is rich and complex enough to enable you to do that, then I think you transcend an ordinary act. You start to bring your imagination into full play. And once your imagination comes into play, I believe you are in the realm of the arts rather than in the realm of the ordinary.
0: You also advocate for, in a way, going beyond reading uh, to reading aloud. What does that do for you that reading to oneself can't?
1: Well, I think reading to oneself is important, but in reading aloud, one actually achieves a sort of a sense of relaxation and the words start to sound in your head, in your brain, in a way that gives you uh, more options for how you understand them. I also love the fact that a book read aloud by one person will become another book when it is read aloud by another person. And that's something I've experienced so much since that wonderful invention called Audible came into my life. When Rosemary Pike, for example, reads, it was just as though her voice and the music of Austen's language really blends to make music in my head. And I absolutely love it. And of course, there is a whole history in the research of Austen's books having been read aloud. The Austen family read all those manuscripts while she was still writing them. And there is one letter which Jane Austen wrote to her sister where she complains that her mother's reading of Pride and Prejudice although she understands the book very well, is certainly not good enough to convey what she really wanted to convey in the story, in the narrative itself. So I think particularly for young people, if they can be introduced to some of the books by hearing different people read, it gets their minds working in a different way. They're starting to evaluate what's in the text from the very centre of their being, from what they hear in those sounds and the musicality of the language. And with Jane Austen in particular, the language, it's not the end, but it's the beginning of everything.
0: That actually reminds me of something I read or heard the other day, uh, the music in the words.
1: Absolutely. And Austen does it with such, to use a word of hers, with such felicity
0: was interesting to read that your first encounter with Jane Austen was the 1940 film version of Pride and Prejudice, starring Greer Garson and Sir Laurence Olivier. Now, uh, film and television versions are sometimes criticised as failing to address perhaps the nuances and sometimes even the essence of literature in the process of popularising it. Is this intertextuality a help or a hindrance to the art of reading and, and of rereading?
1: Well, I'm going to shock a lot of people here, Greg, but I'm going to say, I think it's an enormous help. I think that what the films do are alert people again to what is the first and foremost feature of Austen's novels, the sheer pleasure. And it doesn't matter which film I've seen, whether I've agreed with it, whether I haven't agreed with it, pleasure has been the driving force. And I want all readers, to put pleasure before, well, not before anything, but to blend the pleasure with the usefulness of what they're reading. And I think for contemporary readers, especially young readers who are not used to the long-form reading, it's become quite, quite challenging for them, get them into the fun of it first. Let them see what funny, interesting, amazing people they are, and that, I think, might well be a wonderful trigger to entering into the text. My connection through the Greer-Garson film, Greer-Garson remains in my head the only real Elizabeth Bennet, that soft, velvety, she doesn't become Mrs Miniver, she doesn't become anyone else, she just remains Elizabeth Bennet. But whoever is reading the novel, whoever is acting the part in the films, I think they bring something to it, that is interesting for us to go back to the text and think, oh, did she get it? And if she didn't get it, why didn't she get it? It just makes reading, well, as I said before, I think reading and novels like all are puzzles and working out how those puzzles work is part of the fun of life. That's the only game I play.
0: I have a confession to make, Ruth. Uh, I have to disagree with you about the Greer Garson one because my favourite version of Pride and Prejudice is the BBC series with Colin Firth and Jennifer Ehle, and I've always been mesmerised by those fine eyes.
1: Ah, oh, well, you see, you're supposed to. Those eyes are at the centre. I mean, after all, they bewitched Darcy. Wouldn't why wouldn't they bewitch you? I mean, that is one of the arguments in my thesis about reading that we all read from our own memories and our own experience, there will be a reason, uh, and we won't do a Freud here, but there will be a reason why you prefer Jennifer Eel to Greer Garson. And I think there is a reason why I have never discarded Greer Garson. It's something to do with our lived experiences. And if we, if we don't take that into account when we're reading, I think we lose we lose the magic of what reading really is. If we we alienate it from our own lived experience, and that became the big argument of my thesis, which I hadn't realised was going to be the argument until I'd actually started to write it and weigh up all the evidence that I found. I'd like to quote to you one of the great critics, Reginald Farrow, who wrote a sort of a mock obituary to Jane Austen on the first century anniversary of her death, believing that she had not been done any justice in the obituary that had been written when she did actually die. And he says, his favourite novel is Emma, by the way, not Pride and Prejudice, and he says, reading Pride and Prejudice 12 times will give you 12 experiences of pleasure. But reading Emma the same number of times will give you that number squared and squared again.
0: (laughs) That is a huge number. (laughs) 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 So Now, um, this whole idea of rereading and you resolve to reread all of Jane Austen's work with greater intent. Now, that would seem to be something that might very easily apply to an academic. But how does that apply to the casual reader, the reader who's just looking for pure entertainment and pleasure?
1: Well, I have to say it does go beyond entertainment and pleasure. But my, my whole thesis is framed in the concept of literature that was really introduced by the, by the Latin poet Horace in I think it was the first century BC. And he said that the pleasure and the usefulness, he called it the sweetness and the usefulness of literature, are blended, are entwined so intricately that we should not try to separate them. And, of course, that sort of separation, I suppose, of pleasure and usefulness, which you could call emotion and cognition, came with a Cartesian thinking, which came a lot later, and we've been inclined to separate those. I want to bring the pleasure together again with the cognition, and that's what I mean by reading with intent, which basically to me means reading attentively, attending to every word, attending to how the novel is structured and also attending to how I feel when I'm reading so that at all times I am allowing my own memories and my own experiences to enter into the way I am reading Jane Austen's text. So if I'm reading about Mary Bennett, who is really a character that most people make fun of, I'm actually thinking, you know, I know what it felt like not to be quite as popular and quite as pretty as all the other girls in my class. I know why she might be reading books and trying to find some way of finding her identity.
0: Now, of course, this book is called The Jane Austen Remedy, and you refer to the Jane Austen Antidote. What is the Jane Austen Antidote and what is it an antidote to?
1: Well, now there's a little story there, Greg. My, my um, commissioning editor wanted me from the beginning to call it the Jane Austen Antidote. And I was very reluctant to give it that name because, and I explained, I do have a chapter that's called the Jane Austen Antidote in which I explain that antidote for me is connected with Epsom salts and castor oil that my father, who was a doctor, used to give me whenever I was irritable. So it does not have a very good feeling, although it has its uses in talking about Jane Austen. She eventually, and this was my editor too, she came up with the alternative of Remedy, and I was so much happier because to me the idea of Remedy is what I was trying to do through my reading reading of Jane Austen. I was trying to remedy my state of mind, and my state of mind I really only discovered when I was diagnosed with actual physical symptoms. It was then I realized there was something going on in in the way I was feeling that I had not addressed, that I had not understood. So remedy from that point of view is very interesting. But I like also in the chapter on the antidote to talk about a little it's a, it's a little puzzle that is in the book Emma that refers to woman as the antidote for all man's man, a man's woes. and I from a feminist perspective, I found that an incredibly interesting concept to talk about, how I view that then and how I view it now, and how I hope that men will never regard us as as antidotes in the future.
0: Now, that could kick off a whole discussion about Jane Austen and feminism. Feminism. We might skirt around that because I want to talk about the individual chapters where you talk about the particular books, the six novels of Jane Austen. I've got to start with Pride and Prejudice because it's possibly the most read of Jane Austen's novels and, and you give this chapter the subtitle In Sunshine and in Shadows. Is it now for you after rereading it more one than the other? Yes, yes. Uh,
1: I have to say that particularly, even in the writing of the thesis, where I had more or less stumbled on, and when I say stumbled on, I shouldn't I should attribute uh, any credit for that to my final supervisor who suggested that I frame my testing out of the novels in my own lived experience, in my memories of having read them. So that, that that was a very important way of writing the thesis. As I was writing it, I was aware that I was letting go of a whole lot of stuff that I didn't know that I, I hadn't really known it was there. Uh, I mean, I'd come to a new understanding and a new sense of energy through the reading Rereading of the novels, for retreating from my life in the city to life in the country, I had come to a a better place in my life. But it was actually at that stage, the last eight months of writing the thesis. Uh, in that stage, I started to see that this was absolutely a liberating process for me. And then, when I was commissioned to take the thesis as the as the seed, as the germ, as as um, Henry James would have called it, and, and work from there to write a memoir that was really about what I had read and how it had impacted on my life. Not only did a lot of those shadows dissipate, but I, I have felt an exhilaration that is probably, um, well, I keep saying it, it's the best time of my life. I wish it would last a bit longer.
0: <laughs> Northanger Abbey. Oh, it's only a novel. What was the significance of that line to you uh, as your least reread novel too?
1: That is one of the most important things Austen has ever written because that paragraph when she and we don't know she says, "Oh, it is only a novel," says the young lady. Where the young lady comes from, we don't know. That is the that's the magic of Austen. She's an experimental novelist. We think she's just you know a sentimental novelist. No, no, no. She's doing as much to change the novel in her time as Virginia Woolf did it to change in hers. So there she is plucking a young lady out of nowhere and putting into her mouth the words that I suppose synthesize some of the best understanding of what literature is about. It is is the very essence of literary criticism. A novel uses the best possible language, the young lady tells us. It gives us a delineation of character, a number of characters, different sorts of characters, and delineates them so that they come to life on the page. It is written with wit, everything is written with wit. Of course, they are rom coms, romantic comedies. There is always that comic element there. And they contain some wisdom and wit. Now, what more, who could express better than that? I mean, there are books that haven't expressed that. 20 chapters couldn't say that more succinctly than Austen does. So I love that young lady, and I think that Austen in her own way, and you get little gems in the letters she writes to her sister and to her nieces and to her nephew, little gems that show she understands not only what narratives are about, but how they need to be made if they are going to engage not only with the reader, the world with the world in which the reader lives
0: now you round out your re-examination I suppose I could call it of Jane Austen's novels with persuasion which is the penultimate chapter of your book what remedy did you find in persuasion
1: I found a heroine who has always been spoken about as an elegy heroine because there's a lot of description of autumn and there are autumn leaves and there are all those things there. But this heroine, in fact, is approaching her second spring. So there's a tension between the autumn, which has developed because she has experienced such rejection from her family, and the spring that is coming because she suddenly finds her own self and is, finds the courage to speak up and act for who she is on her own behalf. And that, for me, was, was the remedy. I can't pretend I'm like Anne Elliot. I mean, she was a, she was younger and she was different. But I felt a new spring coming, not only into my, my life, but into my step, into the way I felt about the world. All of a sudden, here I was, over 70, nearly 80, and I wanted to do a PhD thesis. And I, I mean, I had tried in my 50s and when I hadn't finished by the time I was 60, it was nothing to do with Austin, it was more to do with education. I gave that away, I thought, I'll never do it. And here I was thinking, I can do this. I have had some wonderful mentors, people that, that came out of the blue, they weren't necessarily long time friends, who said, yes, you can do it and it is worth doing. And there were people whose point of view I respected, whose understanding of literature I, I, I judged to be of the, the foremost quality. And all of a sudden, something which had seemed like climbing Mount Everest, was just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other. And five, young, five years later, it was over. <laughs> it, was, it was done. So it was great. It was a remedy.
0: What a wonderful journey that was. And I want to talk about another journey that um, some people will undertake, hopefully will undertake. And it's my last question to you. I want you to consider the recent changes to university fees, particularly those that relate to arts degrees and and the humanities in general. What value do you place on an arts degree? And do you consider the humanities to be under attack? And if so, who does it affect most?
1: Would you like me to write an essay, (laughs) You have struck, you know, this is one of the preoccupations of my life, of my thinking life. I mean, I'm not a policymaker. I don't have any influence with anyone. I don't think, I mean, my thesis, the whole point of my thesis is it is humanities based. I had to come out of the social sciences where I started in the education department and move into English with humanities based supervisors in order to complete my thesis so my answer to you is i am appalled and horrified by a set of values they are national values they are government policy where every decision is driven by economic financial policies there has come an end to understanding that the humanities are at the heart of human existence, of the human condition, of human nature. I am appalled that in the most recent suggestion for a reform to the English curriculum that only came out, I think, yesterday, when they are talking about coming back to reading as apprehension as much as it is comprehension, which is another of my little slogans, um, trying trying to coax young people to understand that words make sentences and sentences make paragraphs and paragraphs make things worth thinking about and worth feeling about. And I am, I mean, I'm very happy at what has been suggested that we come back to grammar, we come back to a little syntax. I talk a lot about grammar. I don't know whether you've read those bits in in the memoir. My whole understanding of Emma comes out of my understanding of the subjunctive mood. I call it a subjunctive novel. And I grew up at an era, I don't know, in the 1940s, where we started doing grammar in first class, and it was painless, and we continued doing it, and we went over, you know, it was continuity, it was sequencing, it was reinforced, we read beautiful essays that gave us the feeling of how how the humanities are constructed through meaning and through words and through the through the thoughts of wise and witty people and here you have the the English teachers association actually opposing this reform and i am just surprised i am maybe i shouldn't be surprised but i am disappointed And I am so saddened to think that they will not even give credibility. There is a comment in the the newspaper about the difference. I'm struggling to understand it. Someone who is saying that science teachers should be just as responsible for language as English teachers, because the language of science is in the passive voice and the language of English is in the active voice. I'm struggling to understand what that means. I'm struggling to understand we, why we don't want, with all the theory we have from the, the great psycholinguist, the Russian Vygotsky, who really turned thinking about language and learning upside down, why we don't understand that it is not an ordeal for children to be led to sentences that work and
0: make meaning. I want to finish that conversation with something that a friend of mine often refers to. He uses the sword and the shield, but I wondered whether language is both a sword and a shield to all the disinformation that we're we're flooded with these days. Is a humanities degree, for example, something that is both a sword and a shield to understanding what's really going on in the world?
1: Absolutely. And, and that, you see, a sword and a shield. Well, the one thing to be a sword and a shield, here you've got another concept that lies at the heart of the humanities, the paradox, you know, that we've got something, two things that by all cognitive sense should be mutually exclusive, actually working beautifully together. And I've, if I may put in a last word, if we're coming to end, if you ever want to know what language can do, just listen to Vladimir Zelensky and think what has he done to a whole country of people? He has given them courage. He has given them. I mean, it is the heartbreaking sense that they're going to fight to the last man, woman and child. But what an inspiration. And, you know, the English curriculum is, if we can get back to that, is supposed to be about the power of language. Well, Vladimir Zelensky knows how to write and how to deliver a sentence. And I would like the English Teachers Association to take note of that.
0: Ruth Wilson, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast.
1: I am most complimented. Thank you so much for your lovely questions. It's been a pleasure to think about those issues again.
0: I've been talking to Dr. Ruth Wilson about her new book, The Jane Austen Remedy. It's published by Alan and Unwin, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.